Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. People often complain about being tired and burnout these days from work and family responsibilities. We think it's because of the way technology has sped up the pace of life and the way we're always on and figure we're living in the most exhausting age in history. But are we really? My guest argues that no, people have been complaining about being tired since at least antiquity. Her name is Anna Schaffner, and she's written a book called Exhaustion, A History, which traces the fascinating evolution of physical, psychological, and existential fatigue from the ancient Greeks to the modern day. Today, she takes us on this tour. And as we move from age to age, we dig into how exhaustion has changed as to how it's described, whether we blame external or internal factors as its source, and how much we believe personal agency can control it. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash exhaustion. Anna joins me now via Skype. All right, Anna Katharina Schaffner, welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me on your program. So you wrote a book called Exhaustion, A History. I'm curious, this is a, an interesting topic to delve into the history of exhaustion. So what got you looking into that? Were you just really tired one day and you were thinking, did the ancient Greeks like complain about being tired of being tired too? And I'm going to explore that. So what happened there? Yeah, it was it wasn't quite like that, but it was similar. I did often, you know, feel very exhausted and tired and um, weary and overburdened, you know, as academics tend to <laughs> at numerous times in their lives. And I also noticed a really interesting increase in newspaper reports and television programs and scholarly studies on stress and burnout, especially in Germany. The Germans were really, really obsessed with that topic a couple of years ago. And everybody basically said that we've never, ever been that exhausted collectively, that we're living the most exhausting age ever and that basically, you know, everything about our time was sucking out our energies and that we're, we're confronted with this really demanding environment in which we constantly have to be cognitively switched on. And new technologies basically mean that we can never properly switch off. And also, you know, neoliberal working arrangements were, you know, psychosocially really, really stressful. So everybody was making these big grand claims about our utterly exhausted and exhausting age. And then I did think, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. But I do wonder really whether exhaustion as a sort of mental and physical state is, is unique to our age. And then I thought I'd, I'd look into it. I was really interested. And then I really did find that exhaustion is really a, a topic that has concerned 
people throughout the centuries. And it is not, as we might think, related to new technologies. It is not related to the sort of hyper-competitive neoliberal environment, but it's really a ubiquitous and timeless concern. And I think, you know, I don't deny that we're living in a stressful age and that there are numerous new psychosocial challenges that are very unique and specific to our times. But I did find that every age has sort of struggled with its own burden and its own challenges. And every age has also perceived itself as exhausting. And a lot of people before us have have actually made similar claims as to, you know, how suddenly everything was terrible. And they look back nostalgically to to the past, imagining the past as much more, much more kind of peaceful, less stressful. So you have this sort of nostalgic glorification of the past as a you know as an age in which the stressors were fewer and that happens in in lots of different periods not just in ours and and basically i i was really fascinated with that because that's not how most people perceive it and i did also find that quite soothing as an idea you know that we're not the only age that has struggled with the problem of exhaustion so yeah this was i, I thought it was soothing too it's like well you know People thousands of years ago also were tired, just like, like like I am. So let's talk about that. When was the first time we see in you know, recorded human record of people complaining about being tired or exhaustion? Yeah, I think, I mean, that really, you know, my, my investigation, my research took me all the way back to the age of classical antiquity. And you really do find it in some of the epics. You find it also in, in Galen's writing, you know, this uh, great doctor who, who basically established humoral medicine. And, and he, he was looking at exhaustion in the context of melancholia. Because basically, exhaustion, you never really encounter it purely on its own in the uh, literature of the past, in the medical text or in the theological text or in the philosophical text. What I did is I looked at different syndromes that entailed exhaustion as a core symptom. So I looked at texts on melancholia. I looked at uh, texts on neurasthenia, on nervous weakness, on depression, on chronic fatigue syndrome, and on, on burnout. And exhaustion is always central to these syndromes, but it's not the same, of course, because in those syndromes, it is always combined with other symptoms. And sometimes these symptoms are thought to be the cause of exhaustion is, is the, the cause of these other symptoms. And sometimes exhaustion is, is thought to be one of the consequences of them. So it's always really interesting. And one of the earliest writing, coming back to your question about exhaustion, is, is really in the sort of humoral medical texts on melancholia. And humoral medicine is really based on the idea that we have four humors that need to be in balance with one another. And all illnesses, all distress, all forms of discomfort can be explained with recourse to imbalance. So Galen thought that exhaustion, and in, mainly in the form of torpor, lethargy, weariness and, and pessimism, is one of the core symptoms of melancholia. And he had a lot to write about exhaustion in the sense that he thought it was called, caused by a surplus of black bile. And he had also this very lovely image of um, how we how we kind of how black moods and um, you know pessimistic worldviews happen. He he basically thought that when the body is confronted with too much black bile it starts to burn the excess of black bile and the 
fumes of black bile, they sort of rise up into our head and literally cloud our vision. You know, they make us see everything through a dark, through a glass darkly. So, so Galen was one of the very first to, to write about exhaustion. And he had this interesting idea that it was partly physical, you know, this idea that it was because of an imbalance of, of the humors and an excess of black bile, but that this physical imbalance obviously had effects on, on, our, on people's mental life. So it, it really manifested itself as, as a lack of energy, but also as a mood disorder, so to say. Well, yeah, that's an interesting point because that's something that I noticed throughout the book is as you go through the different stages of civilization and how they approached exhaustion, there was this, I don't know, a tension between whether exhaustion or depression or whatever you want to call it is physiological, right? It's in the body or if it's psychological, it's just in the mind or spiritual. So it sounds like Galen was saying it was a little bit of both at the time. Yeah, I mean, he 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 thought it was originally physical, but then had psychological impacts. And what is really interesting is how that relationship between the physical, the mental, and the social shifts in the different theories of exhaustion. And basically, in my book, I look at forms of exhaustion that constitute physical and mental states, and that are all also at the same time broader cultural phenomena. So physically, exhaustion really um, manifests itself as fatigue, lethargy, and weakness, and it can be a temporary state, and those aren't particularly scary because they, they pass, or, they can, or, or that kind of state of exhaustion can be a chronic condition. And in my book, I really look at the pathological forms of exhaustion and those that are not obviously the result of an underlying and clearly diagnosable medical condition. And emotionally, exhaustion can, can be described as, as weariness, disillusionment, apathy, and hopelessness, or a lack of motivation. And what I find really fascinating that, that is that throughout the ages, the different theories always theorize the relationship between the mind, the body, and the social very, very differently. And that was for me the attraction about that topic because, you know, the ways in which we think about the interconnection between the mind, the body, and the social is really, really interesting. And it also tells us a lot about other assumptions about, you know, selfhood and, you know, how connected we are. And also, you know, the kind of whole idea, the Cartesian idea of a split between the mind and the body is obviously a later phenomenon. And most of the earlier texts and theories are much more holistic and they they assume that there's a sort of intricate connection between the mind and the body and and they try to sort of theorize that connection in very interesting ways and also so there's this this tension between mind and body but there's also you see throughout the history and we see even with the ancient and classical antiquity whether exhaustion is a sign of weakness right? Of like a moral failing, or if it's just something that just happens to you and you're not, you're, you're pretty much blameless for it. And that changes. But before we see how it changes, like what did like say the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans think of exhaustion? Was it seen as a, as a moral failing or a moral weakness of some sort? Or was it just something like, well, yeah, that just happens to you and that's okay. Yeah. I think it wasn't seen as a moral failing and it was also not considered as weakness as such. It was something that started out in the body. And I mean, they did believe that you could cure exhaustion and melancholic states by paying attention to, to diet, 
by living a very moderate lifestyle, you know, avoiding excesses of all sorts. So there was a sort of, there was an idea that our behavior contributes to, to our exhaustion if we're not careful, if we, you know, eat the wrong kinds of food, if we indulge in, you know, activities that are not, not restful, if we don't pay attention to, to our energy levels, that we are partly responsible for, for suffering from exhaustion and, and states of exhaustion. But the other interesting thing about melancholia, because, you know, melancholia was the big sort of exhaustion syndrome in that period, was that melancholia also had a vaguely positive connections back then already, because Aristotle actually connected melancholia and the melancholic temperament with genius. So being melancholic wasn't just seen as something negative. There was also this you know, connection with scholarship and with creativity and with, you know, intellectual powers. But but overall, I would say exhaustion in, in the um, Greco-Roman period wasn't vilified. It wasn't considered sinful. It wasn't considered a weakness. It was rather about sort of temperament and physical responses that we can influence by watching our behavior. But it didn't have these sort of excessive moralistic connotations that came with later diagnoses. And so, yeah, let's talk about that change. That started changing in the Middle Ages with Christianity. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's for me probably the most interesting theory of exhaustion, the idea that exhaustion is sinful. And medieval exhaustion was actually really present in a syndrome cluster that is called Achidia, and that was later renamed as sloth. So Achidia really was born amongst hermit monks in the Egyptian desert, and early theorists, including Evagrius Ponticus and Johannes Cassian, who, who lived in the Egyptian desert, and blamed uh, exhaustion on the noonday demon. And Achidia is really a very interesting phenomenon. It's a mixture of melancholia and sloth, and it was thought to be manifest in listlessness, apathy, and lack of care. And it was originally diagnosed exclusively in monastic environments, but then it became sort of more ubiquitous and became democratized and everyone was able to suffer from Achidia. And Achidia has also very poetically been described as weariness of the heart. And the 13th century Italian theologian Thomas Aquinas was the first to very, very explicitly define Achidia as a spiritual sin. And I think that was a really interesting turn in the history of exhaustion because he thought exhaustion was a failure of morality and it was owing to a lack of proper faith. So basically the exhausted, the lethargic, the lukewarm, the weary were guilty of refusing to accept divine grace. They were basically guilty of a bad mental attitude. And in fact, very few people know that Achidia or sloth was considered the most dangerous of the seven deadly sins. And it was the most dangerous because it, it basically breeds all the other bad behaviors and the other sinful forms of acting because, because it can all be traced back to this lack of faith in God's goodness, this sort of, you know, dismissive attitude about what is good and what is important and what is divine. And the underlying idea was also, of course, that by giving in to exhaustion, we we are guilty because, because we, we are weak, our flesh is weak, our mental state is weak, and we let the sort of 
evil forces from the outside take over because we're not vigilant enough and we, we don't have enough faith to, to fend off, you know, the noonday demon, for example. And of course, that has implications for responsibility and agency. I mean, one of the other interesting things about exhaustion is that it always brings up bigger philosophical questions about personal responsibility and agency. And in the Middle Ages, really, the the slothful and the ecletic and the you know weary and lethargic were sort of as sinners. So it was interesting you talk about talking about Italian Italians in the medieval times. Is uh, Dante and his Divine Comedy like exhaustion was front and center in that? What did what can the Divine Comedy teach us about how people living in that period thought you could overcome the sin of Achidia? Yeah, I, I when I reread the Divine Comedy, I was really struck by how You know, it can really be read as a book that traces the gradual overcoming of weariness, of spiritual and physical weariness. And there are lots and lots of reference to sleepiness, to lethargy, to tiredness, to heaviness. And and Dante, you know, he sheds all his sins on the way to paradise. So he he, you know, he's lost spiritually and and literally at the beginning of the divine comedy and then he meets his guide who you know basically guides him through the inferno and to purgatory and in, in the end he you know he's reunited with his beautiful beatrice in paradise and in the course of his journey he becomes more and more energetic and he shakes off this torpor this lethargy and it becomes very clear that exhaustion and in the form of achidia and slothfulness has been his major sin. And he encounters he encounters lots of other slothful characters in the course of his journey, all of whom get punished. You know, there's this sort of law of contrapasso at work in, in the Divine Comedy, this idea that all the sins are punished by tortures that either resemble or contrast with the sin in question. So some of the weary and slothful characters are forced into eternal activity. And the lukewarm who never really wanted to commit to, you know, to God's goodness or to to good causes, they're forced endlessly to run after empty banners, for example, which is a very beautiful image, I think. And then, of course, Dante also encounters the the wonderful figure of Belacqua, who, you know, who sits really tired and lethargic and weary at the bottom of Mount Purgatory. And if he were able to climb up to the summit of Mount Purgatory, he could really find salvation there. But ironically, he is just too tired to make that climb and he can't be bothered. And he doesn't really believe that, you know, he would succeed in being forgiven for his sins. So he just sits there at the bottom of Mount Purgatory with his, you know, bowed, his, with his head bowed and, you know, leaning against the boulder in the shade, this wonderful image of someone who has really given up on the idea of salvation, but not so Dante, you know, who is driven forward by by Virgil, his guide, and who in the end succeeds in in shaking off his torpor, his spiritual torpor, and recommits to God in the end. I think it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that the the sin of slothfulness originated in monastic scenarios or environments. When I was reading this, I was actually, at the time, I I stayed in a monastery here in close by to my house, just like an hour away. And one of the things I found was interesting. I got there, like all I wanted to do was sleep. 
the day the day before I was fine, like you know, active. But like I got there, and I just got really sleepy. I just wanted. I wonder if it's something about the monastic way of life that it, it is so regular and it is so. I don't know. It is kind of relaxing. That just makes you makes you tired. It makes you want to sleep. I don't know what was going on there. Yeah, I, I kind of mentioned that. You know, if you have very kind of regular routines, and also, you know, they have to they had to meditate a lot. The monks in the past, you know, they especially the hermits, they were by themselves all day long, every day, and and they had to be really, really disciplined about their kind of spiritual commitments and the meditation aspect of it. And of course, that can be really, really hard and and, and can cause incredible problems with, with concentration. And there's some wonderful descriptions of weary monks in, in some of the texts I studied, you know, monks who basically engage in all sorts of very modern sounding displacement activities. You know, they go out and they stare at the sun and they become really sleepy and then they go and see another monk and idly chat for hours and then they feel really tired again. And, you know, there are all these descriptions of monks who don't quite manage to commit to that, you know, very rigorous discipline that was required. And then, of course, I think what, what also becomes interesting is that in a monastic setting, you know, because because the um, sort of hermitages, the, the, the hermit monks, they were obviously all living separately in, in their own little, I'm not sure, entirely sure how, cell. cells in, in yeah. the desert. Yeah. But then when, when Christianity became more, more broadly organized around monasteries, the lazy monk became a big social problem, you know, because, because monasteries depend on everybody chipping in, everybody doing their job, everybody contributing to the community. And, and the one lazy monk could cause a lot of resentment, <laughs> and as, you know, as is still the case nowadays. All right. So during the medieval time, Middle Ages, exhaustion was seen as a spiritual, it's a weakness of the will. As we shift into the Renaissance, though, again, we see exhaustion changing. So how did it change during the Renaissance? Yeah, I actually studied a really interesting text by a 15th century humanist called Massilio Ficino. He, he wrote a text that is called Three Books on Life. And Ficino was a Neoplatonist and was very, very interested in, in occult theories. He was into alchemy and he was into, um, you know, astronomy, astrology, all of these um, slightly more <laughs> obscure sciences. And he profoundly believed in, in the sort of microcosm, macrocosm connection. And his main cure for exhaustion was really the idea that we need to realign our patterns of behavior with the movements of the planets. So he believed that exhaustion, in again, in the form of melancholia, was caused by the planet Saturn and that, you know, Saturn really, really ha- held sway over the melancholic temperaments and that basically people with a melancholic temperament needed to do quite a lot to, to counteract the influence of Saturn. And he came up with fantastically obscure recipes for, <laughs> for what the melancholics should, should do. And he also recommended which is one of my favorite cures for exhaustion, Orphic dancing. And Orphic dancing is all about realigning your energy with the energy of the planet. So he recommended that we, we imitate the movement of the planets by moving our body in a certain way. So, so reading uh, Ficino is, is actually very entertaining nowadays. And one of the things, so it sounds like here, instead of seen as exhaustion is a source 
being the, the individual being the source of exhaustion, like the planets were, it was like an outside source that caused you to be really tired. Yeah, I think that's another, you know, that's another really interesting factor in the hist- history of exhaustion where responsibility shifts from inner sources to outer sources. You know, sometimes they can be environmental, like the planets, and very often they can be very specific socio-political developments, as we will see um, later on. Um, so, for example, in the 19th century, when theorists began to talk about nerves, weak nerves and nerve force and a lack of nerve force, and, um, and they started to think of exhaustion as basically being caused by a lack of nervous energy, a lack of no- nerve power, lack of nerve force. And they very, very explicitly blamed this lack of nerve force on the modern urban environment. And that was, you know, the, the sort of first very clear-cut um, reassignment of responsibility to something that is outside of our control. You know, basically the theories of um, uh, the theorists of nervous exhaustion were all saying that we are victims of socio-political developments and technological developments. Most famous amongst these was, of course, the American physician George N. Beard who coined the neurasthenia diagnosis in 1880. So he he invented this new diagnostic cluster, neurasthenia, which included all sorts of things. I mean, it's absurdly long and absurdly you know, wide-ranging, and it's no longer in, loose, in use because it basically included far too many symptoms. So it became very kind of baggy as a concept. But what is interesting about neurasthenia was that it was very clearly saying that the main cause of nervous exhaustion is to be found in the modern urban environment. Um, And the idea was that the modern urban environment assaults the highly sensitive nervous system of modern men and women with an incessant stream of stimuli. So, you know, Beard was worried about speed, he was worried about noise, he was worried about the telegraph, he was worried about all sorts of technological developments and how they basically kind of overstimulate our cognitive systems. But Beard was also very clever because he associated neurasthenia with a whole range of very positive connotations as well, because he said only the very sensitive types actually suffer from neurasthenia. So everybody, of course, wants to be sensitive and cultured and civilized. And that was one of the reasons for for why neurasthenia became a very, very fashionable disease. It actually spread like a wildfire. Everybody wanted to be neurasthenic because being neurasthenic meant you were sensitive, you were in touch with your emotions, you weren't crude, you were highly civilized, you were sophisticated. And he also said neurasthenia mainly affects captains of industry and brain workers. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I think that's interesting because you see that also, like going back to Aristotle, right? Being a melancholic, tired guy, well, it's a sign of genius. The Renaissance had that same idea. The Romantics as well in the, the 19th century, if you were, you know, had a depressive outlook on life, well, it meant you were, you were poetic, right? And it became fashionable to do that. And you see that also with neurasthenia. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. 
Suit started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. 
masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. What's interesting too is not only how we think about exhaustion changes, but like the metaphors we use to talk about exhaustion. So like in the 19th century, you mentioned that people started talking about nerve force or nerve power. Well, like, like electricity was invented in the 19th century or thereabouts, like, you know, people started having it in their homes. So that, that they started using that as a way to explain exhaustion, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the metaphors of exhaustion are really, really crucial because metaphors really matter, especially in the field of medicine, because they they really shape the way we imagine what is happening inside us. So, you know, if we imagine our nervous capital as um, comparable to a battery, for example, that has lots of implications. I mean, the battery, the empty battery was a very, very popular image that Beard used, you know, also in response to the spread of electricity and related technologies. But the empty battery was very, very popular back then as a as an image that, you know, sort of captured what happens if we don't manage our nerve force carefully. And of course, the idea was that batteries are, you know, I think they were non-rechargeable back then. I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, the idea was that nerve force is is finite. It cannot easily be renewed. It's a precious resource. And if we squander it, we will be left with nothing. So another very popular metaphor cluster that was used a lot in the 19th century was was revolving around economic imagery. So the idea that we have, um, you know, that, that we have an account and we have to manage it wisely. So we have to manage our nervous energy just as wisely as we would manage our financial assets. Because if we squander it all at once, it's gone and we're bankrupt. So, you know, um, I think he, George Beard even uses the, the term nervous bankruptcy at some point. And he often makes these economic comparisons, which again, you know, implies agency that, you know, although he blames exhaustion mainly on the modern environment, there's always a dimension of agency involved. Because otherwise, if we had no agency, we couldn't defend ourselves against exhaustion. You know, we can't just be victims in this. There has to be something we can do about it. So he's very much in favor of managing our nervous energy very cautiously, very wisely, very, very astutely. And other really interesting images that that the medieval theorists used, one of my favorites is really the idea of the tepid bowl of milk on which flies settled. <laughs> <laughs> That is, um, a sort of, I think it's from the 11th century, if I remember correctly. And this is the idea that, you know, if we let our spiritual essence go sour, <laughs> we will attract demonic and, and disgusting outside forces. And I think it's a very powerful image, the tepid bowl of milk on which flies settle. And of course, other really interesting and important metaphors are related to, I mean, modern day ones would be related to the mind as a computer. And and that has lots of implications as well. Imagining the mind as a computer is very reductive. Um, I think very worrying because you know it just entails that we can reprogram our our cognitive structures and we can get rid of unwanted data and we can delete and you know reload and we can recharge and reprogram. And we can basically get rid of everything we don't like. But I think it really doesn't capture the human animal as, as a very kind of irrational creature. We're not just rational and we can't just be 
easily reprogrammed, you know, and we're not robots. But I think the idea of um, the mind as a computer, and that's very popular in, in the sort of modern burnout literature, is, is, is quite a dangerous one because it really dismisses everything that makes us human. <laughs> well, no, yeah. I've, I think I've seen devices you can buy I don't know if it exists anymore. It was out there. I remember seeing a viral article about it. It's this little device you kind of stick to your forehead and then it sends like electric pulses into your brain and it can somehow energize you or like make you calm. So like it's that idea like, oh, yeah, you can just reprogram your brain like it's some sort of digital device with electrical yeah. current. Yeah. Interestingly, George M. Beard, the inventor of the neurasthenia diagnosis, he used electrotherapy for the exhausted. And that was one of his, uh, you know, therapeutic um, suggestions, like mild electric shocks. Yeah. And so besides the electrotherapy, there was also hydrotherapy. So yeah. Kind of- hydrotherapy was another popular, you know, cure for exhaustion. In fact, the cures that were proposed for exhaustion are also really interesting in themselves. So taking the waters was very, very popular in 19th century Britain. So Darwin, for example, also suffered from exhaustion. And he often took the waters, so he, he indulged in water cures at numerous times in his life. And he was also very cautious about managing his energy. So he would always have very rigorous periods of activity and periods of rest, periods of activity, periods of rest. So reading his letters, it's very fascinating because he was really extremist about the way he organized his leisure time and his work time, for example. Yeah, and then there are, you know, more more obscure suggestions for for curing exhaustion you know lots of potions lots of strange alchemical mixtures and of course in in the middle ages i think the, the that was probably the cruelest cure because the cure was just more work more spiritual exercise so you know those who were exhausted by their by spiritual duties were just told to focus even harder on their spiritual duties or to work even harder. So that was, of course, a vicious circle. So in the late 19th century, exhaustion was seen as neurasthenia. And exhaustion is one of the symptoms of neurasthenia. There's a whole bunch of other symptoms that are associated with it. But then, as you notice, as you note in the book, in the 20th century, like neurasthenia almost disappeared like after World War I. Um, what happened and like, or did it just exhaustion change the way it was described or talked about? Yeah, I think, I think what always happens is that, you know, certain diagnoses, they run their course and um, new ones emerge. I mean, we can even see that nowadays, you know, where the DSM constantly comes up with new diagnoses and gets rid of older ones and so on. So there's always an attempt to, you know, to redesign, refashion our diagnostic tools in order to capture what is bothering us in more, you know, modern, more, you know, accurate terms. And I think that is true of exhaustion as well. But one of the reasons why neurasthenia disappeared from the scene was that, I mean, also the gender politics of exhaustion are very interesting. So neurasthenia was associated with women and the rest cure was often proposed for neurasthenic women and Charlotte um, Perkins Gilman wrote a very famous story about that, um, the yellow wallpaper. And then the kind of gender politics of, of exhaustion changed in that quite a lot of sensitive men began to self-identify as neurasthenics, quite a lot of artists, quite a lot of writers. It was very fashionable to, to be neurasthenic for a long time. You know, most 
most of the you know turn of the century writers would would self-identify as neurasthenic because it was just en vogue to do so but then there was a shift and neurasthenia was beginning to 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 be and people felt it was too baggy to lose a diagnosis and it was also associated with shirkadom you know obviously during the second during the first world war and after there was much less tolerance for for you know suffering of the soul but it, because it all became um very very kind of physically orientated outwards oriented and of course freud had entered the scene by then and freud really shifted the discourse and um, very dramatically and he came up with some very revolutionary ideas about exhaustion so freud obviously he came up with three core ideas so he did say that it's very exhausting constantly having to repress our desires because we have to do that because we live in you know in a society that depends on individuals repressing their selfish desires but repressing those desires makes us neurotic because you know they have to somehow the forbidden wants out and and it becomes manifest in neuroses for example and it also becomes manifest in sublimation of course but it doesn't always work and then we can end up suffering from from exhaustion as a result but his more interesting theories about exhaustion concerned of course his sort of meta psychological idea of the death drive so he famously argued that there's a life drive you know that is is responsible for us striving for us wanting to pro- pro- procreate for us wanting to be active and do things and he also said that this drive is countered by its opposite drive the death drive and the death drive wants to return us to a state of passivity a state of inertia an anorganic state it wants to return us to basically a state before individuation before we we became separate before we became you know individuals and he argues that both drives are conservative and they battle against one another which is quite exhausting because you have these conflicting drives that are operative within us and also sometimes the death drive takes over and it and it takes us into a lethargic state where we want to avoid all activity all novelty all challenge where we just want to ca- basically return to a state where nothing disturbs our peace you know where we seek a sort of fake kind of nirvana by avoiding anything that might be upsetting or challenging or or threatening um you know and and you can still say about certain people oh they're very death driven you know in the sense that they 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 have become extremely passive and um averse to to challenges and averse to 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 anything that is is associated with life and novelty and of course freud also came up with the idea of conflict inside us um that can eat up all our energy that can use up all of our power in internal battles so he famously sort of theorized the id the ego and the superego as psychological instances and he also argued that they can do battle with one another you know that the id and the ego and the ego and the superego can be in conflict and that takes up a lot of energy 
uh, energy that you know is, is then wasted and cannot be invested in into any interactions with the outside world. So so this I I think this idea of, of internal conflict eating up our energy is also quite interesting. And then he also talked about melancholia and the idea that losing a love object can often result in us losing a, a stable sense of self. And it's a very complicated pro process of substitution, but it can happen that we we become so eaten up by loss that this kind of obsession with loss has an effect on our sense of self. And when we've lost our sense of self, we can we can basically no longer properly interact with the outside world because we have used up our energy in 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 psychological conflict operations. All right. So yeah, Freud changed the game big time. He added to the idea that exhaustion can come from within, based on all, based on all these conflicts. And I can see that happening, right? Because like you know, Freud changed the way we thought about ourselves, right, or talk about ourselves. And I can see people being like, "Yeah, I'm just I got to think, I got to sort out this problem, this internal problem." They and before Freud, they would never have thought of it, but now that Freud says, "Oh, it's there," and you're like, "Okay, maybe it is there." This is one more thing I have to think about. That makes me tired. <laughs> so we're just adding to it. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's, you can really see that at work, I think, in everyday life when, you know, when people are really preoccupied with their own problems to such an extent that they really cannot give to anybody else or to outside activities. I still find it a very convincing narrative, personally. So let's talk about recent developments in the history of fatigue and exhaustion, because it's been controversial. In the 80s, we start seeing people talking about chronic fatigue syndrome. For those who aren't familiar with this, like what, what is chronic fatigue syndrome? Like what does it feel like to have chronic fatigue syndrome? Do we know what causes it, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, chronic fatigue syndrome is of the different exhaustion syndromes I discuss in my book. It's by far the most controversial one. And it is, in terms of symptoms, it is similar to some of the others, similar to neurasthenia, similar. Um, there's overlap with... Um, with some of the older ones as well. But basically, ME or chronic fatigue syndrome means that, that people who, who are afflicted by these syndromes suffer from mental and physical fatigue and also post-exertion malaise and a sense of extreme effort that renders many everyday activities impossible. And it also entails difficulties with concentrating cognitive tasks and short-term memory. And it is a it is a highly controversial diagnosis because there were quite a few people, especially in the 80s, who were very unsympathetic to people who suffered from CFS or ME, as it is also known. And there are some differences between the two, but often people talk about ME slash CFS, ME slash uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And I think what happened in the 80s was that there was a very, very unsympathetic reaction in the press. People talked about yuppie flu and basically said it was a sham condition and that it was all in the sufferers' heads. And the problem is that nowadays the, the discussion about uh, CFS and ME is very, very polarized. Um, a lot of CFE, uh, CFS and ME sufferers feel very strongly that theirs is a purely biological condition, a purely physical condition. And then there are some people who argue that there might be a psychological dimension to this illness, 
nobody is saying that this is just in sufferers' heads. Um, I think that you know, very crude and horrible attitude has become unacceptable. But there are some people, some psychiatrists and some medical researchers who, who say, yes, there is some physiological cause to that illness, but then there may be a psychosomatic or a behavioral dimension to recovery from, from the physiological um, issue. Now, that the, the problem with CFS and ME is that it, it has become a very acrimonious debate in that sufferers feel terribly misunderstood and misrepresented by the press in particular, but also by certain um, medical researchers. And they, they react very, very strongly to any suggestions that there may be a psycho, psychosomatic dimension to the recovery process, for example, or to the illness as such. I haven't taken a position on this in my book because I'm not a medical expert and I really couldn't make an, a judgment on what is the true narrative here. I've simply presented the two arguments. I've presented the viewpoint of a sufferer and I've presented the viewpoint of a, a psychiatrist who argues that there's a behavioral and psychological dimension to the illness. Although this uh, psychiatrist also never ever says that it's all in sufferers' heads. However, I've been attacked uh, horribly for, for my chapter on CFS and ME by, by some sufferers who, who hate it when you even mention the other viewpoint. As I said, I haven't actually made a judgment call. How could I? I think, I think it is likely that there might be a biological cause for ME and CFS that hasn't yet been found. I very much hope that is the case because that would mean that you know sufferers um, could be cured once that um, cause can be identified. At the same time, I think it's it's not in any way shameful to say that there is some psychological dimension to some of our conditions. I mean, I would always readily admit that that my health is affected by my psychological state of mind. You know, when I'm stressed and anxious, my immune system is lower and I'm, I'm more likely to get ill. So I don't think it's it's a horrible thing to say that some of our illnesses may have a psychological dimension, you know, not as an exclusive um, cause, but as a contributing factor. But I think because ME and CFS patients have been treated so horribly by the press, the, the, the debate has become very, very polarized. Yeah, I think what it also does too is it, it, sh- bring, it shows very acutely that tension between physiological and psychological. So if it's physiological, we tend to think we it, we don't blame people as much. If it's psychological, we think, well, just get it together. You're responsible for that. But maybe that's the the not we shouldn't have that approach even to psychological issues. Yeah, of course not. You know, and I think I, I find it surprising because you know people who suffer from depression they would not. You know, they would not be stigmatized. I mean, they still are in, in certain, um, you know, in, in certain unfortunate scenarios. There is still a stigma that comes with mental health, but there shouldn't be, of course. And, you know, and depression also has some biological causes. And I think it's it's in most cases um, we have a both and scenario, not a neither nor or either or scenario. So chronic fatigue syndrome, the latest development in or one of the latest developments in how we 
experience exhaustion to describe it. But let's talk about the thing that got you thinking about this was all those articles that were going on in Germany about burnout. Because if you live in America too, we see those articles as well, that burnout is on the rise. So let's first talk about how do we, when we talk about burnout, what are we describing? How is it different from exhaustion in the past? Is it the same? Can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah. So burnout is the latest exhaustion um, syndrome. And burnout is really very, very popular topic of conversation in, especially in the non-Anglo-American countries. I don't know whether a lot of people talk about burnout in in the US, but I would say in in the UK, the discussion tends to revolve around stress, which is much more about personal resilience and personal work-life balance management. But burnout in the way it is discussed in Germany, for example, and also in some of the Scandinavian countries, has a, a dimension that we haven't seen so far, and that is it, it, it includes social structures. It, it includes the idea of working environments that can make us ill. And that's something quite new in the discussion. So uh, burnout is has been defined as basically a, a reaction to... to too much work stress. And the idea is that burnout entails entails three components, and that is exhaustion, that is an inability to perform one's job, and it is also a cynical attitude towards the people with whom one works. And I think that last dimension has to be explained because originally the burnout diagnosis emerged in the 1970s in America in the context of care workers. So the idea was really that people who are in care in the caring profession, so teachers, social workers, nurses, and so on, tend to at some point become very disillusioned because they invest so much emotional energy in their work. And then often they don't get enough back or else they work in a in an environment that you know really exploits them and that um, means that they cannot continue to give quite that much emotional energy. And, and then in the 1980s and 90s, the diagnosis of burnout became democratized again and expanded to encompass all kinds of work. And ultimately, burnout is, is a chronic state of stress, but it is more specific than depression in that it relates particularly and very specifically to one's working environment. Now, a lot of people are happier to diagnose, self-diagnose as burned out rather than depressed because depression is still very clearly a mental health issue, whilst burnout can be actually turned into something positive, you know, like neurasthenia in its early days, because you can only burn out if you give too much, if you work too hard. And working too hard is, of course, something that is validated in our society that has very, very positive connotations. So in a way, you you will find that um, people you know, top managers and so on might be quite happy to self-diagnose as burned out because in a way it's almost a badge of honor. You have worked so hard, you've given so much, you've given so much more than you actually have that you now need to rest so that you now have to earn your, you know, your, your right to, to, to rest and to take a break. So there we go again, exhaustion being a status symbol again. What I think is interesting too 
as you see throughout human history with how we deal with exhaustion, like the cures, like they're pretty much the same. Like even today when we say I'm tired, I'm not talking about, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, but just say you're just burnt out, you're feeling exhausted or you're stressed out. Like what we do, we do like, okay, eat better food, get more sleep. We might, we even have, we do things like hydro, people are taking cold showers or they're doing saunas or what are those pods? The, um, where you sit in and you, the float tanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Or mindfulness. I'm going to meditate. It's, I mean, it's different, but it is the same thing that, you know, Galen was doing basically 2000 years ago. Absolutely. It's all about restoring some kind of balance, you know, but I think what is also really interesting is that burnout can be read in two ways. And I find that in Germany and in some Scandinavian countries, it has a, it has a more overtly political dimension because basically people expect the state to step in and to protect workers against hostile working environments. So, so there's an expectation that, that somehow um, legislation will be changed in order to avoid these kind of epidemics of burnout amongst um, the workforce. Um, so, so there is a very kind of specifically political spin to the burnout argument as well in the in sociological arguments, uh, in particular, you know, which is which concern the, um, you know, the the terrible neoliberal working environment in which we are expected to give permanently, in which we are expected to, you know, engage with our full being emotionally, cognitively, um, creatively, and of course the boundaries between between work and leisure are con- constantly being eroded, and we have to be reachable, you know, twenty four seven. And so on. So, so in in Germany, for example, quite a lot of companies have put into place measures to prevent staff burnout. For example, you know, saying it's it's not possible to send work emails after seven p.m. So, you know, some companies have even manipulated their their company emails accounts to such an extent that. You cannot send after-hour emails. You cannot send or receive them. Or if you go on holidays, your email, your emails will bounce back so that you can actually really properly relax on holidays and you won't come back to a mountain of unanswered email. So, for example, my brother works at Mercedes and, and they have this wonderful, you know, bounce back holiday email system in operation. And, you know, everyone who's on holiday, they, they basically send an automatic message that says, I'm on holiday. If your concern is still of importance after two weeks, please get back to me. But everything bounces back. And so that's just one example of how, how basically it brings us back to the question of responsibility. You know, and in a lot of burnout discussions, responsibility is is moved away from the individual and is is basically placed in the court of the state and and people or the company for which one works. So there is a sort of responsibility of care for for the workers, uh, you know, mental health and work life balance. I find that in in Anglo American uh, discussions, the focus is much more on personal resilience, which which is all about personal responsibility. You know, if you're too stressed, if you get exhausted at work, it's your fault because you allow yourself to get so stressed. So you need to work on your own resilience. So you need to eat more greens. You need to meditate. You need to do yoga. It's all up to you. So I I find that very interesting, the kind of responsibility question that is attached to, to the different cures. Right. And so instead of saying, maybe I shouldn't get email after seven o'clock, 
Americans are like, well, I just need to meditate so I can handle those emails after seven o'clock. I mean, I mean, it's interesting because you see, you do see companies in America, inst- you know, instituting these meditation programs, you know, nap rooms. And we had a guest on the podcast talk about it, like the happiness industry where he says, yeah, I mean, it looks like they're helping you out and, but like, really it's helping their bottom line, right? Because <laughs> they want you to be uh, well rested <laughs> and not stressed out. Cause that means you'll be more productive for them. It's all about enhancing productivity. You know, it's not really a concern about well-being. It's about, you know, we want you to be able to keep on working. (laughs) (laughs) As long as you can. So if you got to take a 20-minute nap, we're okay with that. So what do you think is the big takeaway from this research project? Is is, Is exhaustion just some part of the human existence that we just have to, we have to deal with? I, I absolutely think it is. I think exhaustion is is a you know is a wonderful sort of both end phenomenon in that it's timeless and ubiquitous, but it always puts on new clothes. So it's it's like an ancient beast that keeps appearing in new outfits. And I would say it hooks into you know really basic psychological anxieties about um, illness, the waning of our energy when we die and when we when we grow old and ultimately it's about a fear of death you know losing energy is associated with a loss of control a loss of our health a loss of our time of our powers and you know we only become concerned about exhaustion when we do feel that our energies are on the wane and so it's about you know illness and the process of aging and fear of death. Um, but at the same time, what, what I find so fascinating about exhaustion theories is that every age maps its own discontents onto the condition. So every age really projects whatever, whatever it wants to onto this sort of basic template. And every age kind of reassigns responsibility and rethinks the, you know, mind, body, social nexus in a very unique and special way. And I, I have also found that exhaustion is of exhaustion theories are often a form of cultural criticism. So people will will critique social developments with which they disagree. So, for example, in the burnout debates, you have a lot of people, you know, complaining about neoliberal techno-capitalist developments that that they don't like and they say these are the cause of our exhaustion or in the 19th century you have people saying you know women becoming emancipated and joining the workforce is terrible and it makes them exhausted so exhaustion theories are often used as a sort of cultural weapon you know they're weaponized in the sense that they um, underpin very specific ideological agendas Well, Anna, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. My guest today is Anna Schaffner. She's the author of the book, Exhaustion. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also check out our show notes at aom.is slash exhaustion. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find thousands of in-depth, well-researched articles just about anything, personal finances, habit formation, how to be a better man, how to be a better family man, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay encouraging you to not only listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've learned 
into action. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.